C-A-M-P-A-D-U-L-T-H-O-O-D Camp Adulthood Bridging the millennial divide One conversation at a time Interviewing guests Strangers and friends We hope that you enjoy your stay at Camp Adulthood Hello and welcome to Camp Adulthood and the Resident Youth. I'm the Resident Youth, Maddie Yergi. And I'm Camp Adulthood, Shay Keats. And we are super excited to be back this week with another esteemed guest. And this week we have Sarah Von Bargan, who is a writer, educator, and speaker based in Minneapolis. And Sarah, could you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit more about what you do? Hi, uh, well, my name is Sarah, and um, my elevator pitch is that I help people spend their time, money, and energy on purpose. Um, so I do that through one-on-one coaching. I do it through online courses. I do it through in-real-life workshops, um, and I help people pursue goals that they're actually excited about, not just stuff they feel like they quote-unquote should be doing. I help people spend less money on BS that they don't actually need or want to begin with. Um, and build habits that get them closer to what they want. Love that. Um, I found Sarah on the internet through her No Grocery Challenge, which Ooh, is yes. like, I love it so much, I Sarah. I so, heard of this. Oh my God. Gosh. Basically, she like makes all these amazing things out of whatever is left in the, her oh, refrigerator. you have described this week. to me. I know. Yeah, it is, it is weirdly, I, I love doing it. People love seeing it. A friend of mine messaged me. So what I usually do is I'll take a photo of like the weird leftovers, like the before and after. So like here are the weird leftovers I'm working with. It's literally like bacon fat and like an old hot dog bun and like some lettuce. And then the after is like these beautiful homemade croutons like yeah. and a salad. And my friend messaged me and she's like, I swear to God, every time you post the uh, before photo, my like blood pressure spikes. Like, how is she going to do it this time? <laughs> I love it. Well, we have a lot of discussions in my house about what food is good and when food goes bad. Uh, my fiance and I have very differing opinions. So I like to refer to you when I'm like, yes. this vegetable is perfectly <laughs> able to be consumed yes and also like if you have downloaded so the no grocery challenge is something that i do on instagram but i actually put together like a whole ebook about it because it's a there's a lot more to it than just like cooking with leftovers Mm -hmm. um and in there i talk about how and like i swear to god this sounds like total conspiracy theory but like you can absolutely google the loving bejesus out of this but um expiration dates are like a total it's total propaganda. They're like a marketing like it is, tool. Sarah. <laughs> it's an absolute marketing tool. Like th- there's, there's, there's no reason that if something tastes good and it smells good and there's not visible mold on it, there's no reason for you to throw it out. But when you throw it out, you sure do need to buy more and put more money in the pockets of insert company here. Yeah, totally. So interesting. I agree. I love that. Well, well, I can't. It's a great, yeah, great lead yeah, in I'm... and introduction to your work. <laughs> get excited guys i'm going to talk about moldy food we love oh my it. god it's the best it's the best. all right well going into our segments our toasty campfire topics shay do you have a log for the fire yeah i have found one it kind of harkens back so sarah we're currently doing a series right now in addition to our kind of regular interview episodes um about uh 
kind of big topics that have come up in millennial life over the last decade or so. And we did an episode on weddings um, and I'm getting married next year. And so it's been kind of an interesting topic for Maddie and I to talk about. But um, there is a big trend right now that not trend, I would say movement to. So there are many in the South. There are a lot of um, former plantations have been, that have been turned into event spaces. Mm-hmm. And the particular news tidbit that I'm referencing is that both, I believe it's Pinterest and Zola or something, Zola. they took it off. Yeah. Um, will not post pictures of weddings that took place on plantations because, of course, the horrible history of slavery. Yeah. And um, it was just something that I was mulling over because one of the places that David and I are looking at for our wedding is it's part of this chain of restaurants out here in Oregon called McMenamins. Oh and they're you all guys are going to get married at McMenamins. <laughs> oh, we're thinking about it. This is a whole nother. Oh, my God. Maddie, we'll have this iconic off, off mic. Iconic. Um, but you know, they're built in all of these historic properties. And I, you know, when I was kind of looking at them, I was like, yeah, they great. They all have hotels. They're relatively inexpensive. Um, it would kind of solve a lot of our problems. But then I was like, oh, this plantation thing is like, maybe I shouldn't have my wedding in like a former poorhouse or a former orphanage because they're not all like formerly, these buildings didn't formally have great lives. So, um, Anyway, uh, I just it's just something that I found interesting and something that I was kind of mulling over from both, you know, an ethical standpoint and, you know, what do we do we do? Yeah, I, think I guess. There's... Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, how do we how do we yeah. reconcile our Instagrammable moments with history? But also a lot of these event spaces are owned by small businesses. And is it fair mm. to crush their business? that they didn't have anything to do with slavery or with mm-hmm. putting people in the poor house or whatever. Um, but yet we want to upend their whole business and their whole life. Is that, is that fair? Yeah. I don't know. So that's kind yeah. of my question. I think I'm asking, I think with McMenamins in particular, at least the ones that I've been to, I think they do a really good job of kind of acclimating people to the space and talking about the history. Like the one that we went when we met, Chris and Christian who were doing like a couple's weekend and that one I think was like a former like it was like a hospital or something and they had like plaques everywhere they're all super haunted yeah (laughs) um but I think I definitely got a sense of the history being there and I think that was really Mm -hmm. good and that's something that I think McMenamins does really well I think um you can definitely strike a balance like I don't you know, everything, like even living in Manhattan, like when I went to NYU, they were redoing the street around Washington Square Park and they unearthed a Native American burial ground and there were yeah. bones that were visible just walking down the street. Whoa. And yeah, it was totally crazy. So like yeah. you think about all these spaces that we occupy all the time and you don't know the history of them, um, especially yeah. in these cities where you're kind of building and building on top of on top of things and construction's happening all the time so I think there's no way to avoid it like you can't take a purist kind of view of it but if you Mm -hmm. know that these things are the case like I think totally great point about the small business and supporting local things and I think there's a way to acknowledge acknowledge it yeah and make it make it a part of the day and not be completely um you know celebrating the good things but not talking about the bad things especially I think 
McMenamins is a little bit different because I think they do repurpose yeah, the space. But like yeah. plantations, people go to them because they want kind of that old timey feel. So they're taking advantage of the kind of optics of it and the f- the photo opportunities without talking about the history. But I think mm-hmm. there's no way to avoid that even getting married in a church. There's so much history, especially yeah. with the Catholic yeah, Church. That's a very good point. Um, yeah. And even really historic churches, especially in the Northeast or in Europe, like there were people that were killed in churches and things like that. So again, I think there's no way to take a, a puritanical view of it and avoid these spaces, but I think it's it's good to be aware of it. Yeah, you- I, and I guess that's just what I thought was interesting. Not so much the discussion around it, but the fact that Pinterest and The Knot and other wedding sites are completely not allowing yeah. photos. I don't of know these if I necessarily agree with that. It seems a little yeah. sen- censorshipy to me, but I I agree. I like the sentiment behind it of not glorifying these spaces, but I think it's like why why that particular thing is kind of zeitgeisty right now because there's been a lot in the news about reparations and stuff. Ta-Nehisi Coates, you know, really eloquently spoke about that in front of Congress recently. So I think slavery is top of mind, but there's other, you know, Native American things come to mind for me that don't get as much attention. Um, You know, people that get married at national parks, for example, on land that was taken from people against their will. Like there's so many things that Pinterest could take a stand on. So I think Mm -hmm. it's a little zeitgeisty. Does that make it Mm -hmm. bad? No, but I think it is a little picky and choosy. How do you feel about the topic, Sarah? Oh, gosh. Well, I mean, I think I, I mean, I think you guys um, covered it very eloquently. And I think it's, it's hard because, I mean, we live on stolen land. (laughs) So, I mean, there is, there is not a single inch of the, of the United States of America that something horrible hasn't happened on. Um, And if those, you know, if if it wasn't it used to be an orphanage and now it's a hotel and so maybe that's weird but what would be better like mm-hmm. a business yeah. a, a dentist office i i don't know like what what's the solution um i think it's really really important to acknowledge the history of a space mm-hmm. and i think that if at all possible to sort of build in the history maybe so i went to um the, the the university that I went to, the buildings of the university um, had previously been, I forget what they're actually, they're like boarding school for Native American kids who they had taken mm-hmm. away from their parents. So like very bad stuff. Um, and one of the ways they dealt with that is by any anyone with who was, um, I think up to like one eight one eighth um, Native American and had, you know, the appropriate test scores got a full ride um, to my university. Wow. So I think that there are ways to build reparations kind of into your business model and acknowledge the role that this space played in history um, without like basically bulldozing it because it has bad juju. Yeah. I think yeah, about this is it. taking it to a little bit of a dark place, but I was just listening to a podcast about this. Um, the in Cleveland, the I think it's in Cleveland, the um, apart the apartment building that, or maybe no, it's Milwaukee. It's definitely Milwaukee oh. where Jeffrey Dahmer murdered Oof. people. Uh, um, oh my gosh! Was I think he he was a white guy, but he lived in a predominantly minority African American community, and he lived in um, you know very affordable kind of low income housing. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, he lived in a, a big apartment building. And after all that happened, there was all the investigations. Like, the city didn't know what to do with it. And obviously, there was a lot of people going to be, you know, kind of death tourists to go visit Jeffrey Dahmer's. Yeah. So it became kind of this site in the city completely bulldozed it and they don't know what to do with it so to this day i mean this was happening what in like the 90s so like 20 years later there's nothing on the space there's it's just a flat grant it's not even like a parking lot it's like a chain link fence because they don't want people to be taking pictures and stuff there so like you're taking away housing from low-income minority communities and then not doing anything with it so i think that that's an example of how it can be handled poorly when a space has a bad history but very interesting yeah all right maddie what is your toasty campfire log so mine i feel like okay so i don't think we talked about it because we haven't um i feel like there's been a lot going on but i so i my office we moved into a new office downtown so we were in Flatiron, and we had a headquarters and then we outgrew that space and so part of us went to a WeWork and then we're now all together at the new headquarters building that was like built out specifically for us. Like I work for a food company, so there's like a whole new like test kitchen there. So it was like a very long build out. And essentially, and I know a little bit more about this because I work in finance and work on the budget and stuff like that, but like it took them so long to build the space that now we're kind of moving in closer to capacity. And so they're trying to figure out like what to do about the fact that they're either going to have to eventually get more space or reconfigure the space to fit more people and it's frustrating because like as a company we've the old headquarters was super super cramped and then some of us were in the WeWork or going back and forth or whatever so we've kind of been in this limbo and then we're moving into the new space and we're like great not a lot of planning ahead for and we're going to be back in the same situation that we were just in and it was kind of an interesting timing too because we moved out of the WeWork right as WeWork has kind of been imploding. And there's a great article in the latest issue of Vanity Fair that kind of goes through like Adam Newman, who's the disgraced CEO that left, except he's laughing all the way to the bank because he got like a bajillion dollars. And they laid off 25% of their corporate workforce, which is huge. Oh my God. And divested from everything that was not the core business basically overnight. And their IPO failed, all that stuff. So the article really goes through that. And it talks about kind of, the megalomania tendencies of Adam Adam Newman and his family that kind of started WeWork. And it's just made me think a lot about workplace culture and how we work. And I know both of you are entrepreneurs, but you've experienced kind of more traditional workplaces. And even I think as entrepreneurs, you know, dabbling in the co-working spaces and stuff like figuring out what works best for people and what makes people the most productive. So my office to combat the fact that like, if we're hiring at the pace that we're currently hiring we're going to run out of desk space they've gone to this neighborhooding phenomenon where everyone gets assigned a locker and then you can just sit wherever you want there's some parameters of like you know ada stuff where like some people have to have an assigned desk and then there's some people like the designers for example that have big fancy computers so like they get to sit there and they kind of divided everyone into neighborhoods so like there's the finance neighborhood there's 40 people that work in finance you can sit in any desk hook up your laptop, you can sit in a breakout space, you can book a conference room, whatever. And it's kind of turned into like some people have embraced that where they're like, I'm going to sit somewhere new every day and like be really collaborative. And then some people are like, low key kind of against the rules, like this is my desk being very territorial, (laughs) like do not sit here. And it's a little silly because like right now, 
we do have more desks than people. So people are like, okay, well, when we grow big enough, we can evaluate. But like right now, it's silly to like have to pack up all your stuff. And like you think about all the things in your office, you know, you have post-it notes, you have a notebook, you have pens, you have chapstick, you know, all this stuff. And so I end up every day having to put it in a bag into my locker just to sit in the same seat. And like I have positioned the monitor. I've sat in the same seat basically every day that we've been there for the past two weeks outside of, you know, the occasional like if I'm eating a snack or something, I'll like go sit in one of the breakout spaces so I'm not like crunching near people. Um, So it's just interesting to see like with all of this freedom that the office space is giving people how they're choosing to use it and what habits people have and Mm -hmm. these new because the way that the company like I know because I work in finance that it's primarily a financial thing that they don't want to get more space but the way that they're pitching it to people is like this is the way of the future like everyone's flexible mind you this company doesn't have a great like it has a work from home policy in that you can request it from your manager but we don't have whole scale work from home policy like they have at other places where you can kind of flex your time and it's an integrated part of the culture. Um, So they're like, yeah, it's more flexible. You can sit if you're working with another department on a project, you can sit with them for the day. Like this is much better than the one desk to one employee thing. But it also makes you feel like something's getting taken away from you and you can't like decorate your desk or have all your little personal Mm -hmm. stuff. So I just wanted to get both of your advice slash opinions on that situation or like the we work kind of phenomenon oh my goodness oh go ahead oh no i mean i think it's so interesting because i feel like i've in the last just i don't know three years probably run the entire gamut of like coming from i mean it's still a small business but a a proper office to working from home to being at a we work to being in-house with a client to i just signed a lease on an office space for myself and a colleague um, last week. So it's been a little bit of, I can't say, I mean, I think the situation I'm about to go into is going to be like the best of all of them. But I think ever since. What made you want to sign the lease with just one other person versus getting like a two person office in a WeWork type situation? uh, Because the, my league Michelle called me up and she goes, so this uh, full office is uh under five hundred dollars a month for both of us and i was like done sold cheaper than a we work desk yeah so but you don't get all the amenities i'm sure of no the i mean it has a conference room it, i mean it, it's it's pretty nice i mean i i'm very i'm very happy with that decision um yeah but, i was just curious because it's like you've kind of experienced all of it like why yeah that. yeah it was definitely and it's it's also in my little suburb right so um i think and this is something i'm it's excited to talk to Sarah about as we move into the interview portion, right? We're thinking about your finances. Yeah. I love a WeWork. The networking is great. The amenities are cool. The space is gorgeous, which is really, really helpful when you're meeting with clients. Um, but ultimately at $300 a month plus $20 a day for parking and having to drive a half hour or more each way to get there, it's just not, you know, a mindful or an intentional or practical choice for me. Right. And, um, this option is, so I don't know, but it will be nice to kind of feel like I have true ownership over space, but I'm yeah. also working. You what know, made you want to stop working from home? Cause I think I'm always curious about that. Cause everyone at my oh. office is like, Oh, if I could work from home every day, like it would be so great. But 
and I don't know how you feel about that, Sarah. I don't know if you have an office or if you work from home. Yeah. But like, what are the pros and cons? Hear what Sarah says. I mean, I like working from home, but I also have two dogs and two part-time kids. And, you know, David gets home much earlier than I stop working. So I'm just like... This, there's too many distractions and I still like it and I still will work from home, but having an office space that's three minutes away is very helpful. Anyway, Sarah, what it, how, how do you work? What is your kind of day um, look well, like? Well, I would say the preface for all of this is like, I am an INTJ, I'm an Enneagram one. Uh-huh. I'm, uh, so like the thought of, oh my God, sitting at a different place every day <laughs> with people talking to me. And having to like shuffle my snacks around is like truly yeah. my actual worst nightmare. Yeah. Like I, I would like truly if I if a company was like, we would like to hire you, we're gonna pay you two hundred grand, you don't get a desk, I'd be like, middle fingers in the air, absolutely not. There is not enough money you could pay me to do that. I feel like it's kind of the same as when companies say that you have quote unquote unlimited time off, which actually Mm -hmm. means that people take way less time off because, or have you ever heard the metaphor in child psychology about how like kids need boundaries so they can bounce up against them. If there's a playground with no fence, they will only use half of the playground. If there's a fence, they will use the entire playground. Yeah. So So, like, I just want you to tell me you have three weeks of paid vacation. You have one week of sick leave. This is your desk. These are the expectations. Yeah, people like structure. Yeah, for my brain, when you're like, it's cool. I'm like, it's not cool. Just yeah. tell me what you want me to do. And I feel like that's the issue. To, not issue, but that's one of the things that I've seen with like work from home, especially if that's all you have, is that there's no separation between your personal life and your work time. Both, so, both Sarah, in a way that like you overwork, but also that you don't get yeah. any work done. <laughs> like, yes, kind that's of how I feel. So, Sarah, do you work primarily from home, or do you have a co-working space with like a dedicated I desk ex- or office? I have work. I work exclusively from home. Okay, for a variety of reasons. Um, the most of the co-working spaces in Minneapolis. Um, would require me to pay, you know, 15 bucks a day in parking, which I'm deeply Mm -hmm. uninterested in. Yeah. Um, And the way my business model works, this sounds so snotty, but like in-person local networking is of zero use to me. Yeah, that makes sense. Like it is much like I will jump on a Skype call with an Instagram friend all the live long day. Mm -hmm. Um, But and like I have internet friends all over the world. I do mastermind retreats like all over the world with internet friends, but like sharing a table with, you know, a personal trainer in the North Loop of Minneapolis while I pay fifteen dollars for parking, that is of zero use to me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um and, and also like I I'm extremely focused when I'm working. And so I don't particularly want to chit chat with yeah, anybody you don't have those distractions I, you don't want to like do no. the laundry or walk the dog or whatever yeah like I, I use the pomodoro method i literally schedule my google calendar the entire workday, like from 9 a.m to 5 p.m like my google calendar is with like the tasks that i will do that's what i um, start doing <laughs> it's, it works super super well and yeah. again like I realize this is like specific to my brain chemistry. It's specific to like my living situation. It's specific to like my husband um, bike commutes. So he leaves for work at like 630 and he gets home at 630. Mm-hmm. So I'm 
my entire work day is completely by myself. Um, my stepsons are in school all day and we only have them 40% of the time. So working from home super works for me, but I, I realize that it is not for everybody. And for some people in person, networking is incredibly important. And some people are extroverts and some people, you know, thrive on having other people around them being busy. Yeah, I definitely feel the extrovert introvert thing because Corey and I, we were my boyfriend, we were redoing our bathroom and we were staying with a friend and she's extremely extroverted. And she had a job at the time where she was working for two entrepreneurs. So they were the founders of a business and then she was kind of their one staff. And they (laughs) kind of oscillate between like working from home or having a fixed office or going to a we work like at different points in time, they've had all of those options. But Mm -hmm you know, if it's only three people and you're not really networking. So she ended up working from home a ton. And my boyfriend, who's super extroverted, is in school. So he was home a lot. So they were constantly like, Jenny was like, oh, great. Now there's people here and I can pretend like I'm in my own co-working space in my home and like chit chat versus Corey, who was like, I am in my own personal hell every day, like not having alone (laughs) time. So like it was very interesting because I'm kind of in the middle. Like I... I think I'm, I tend to be a little bit more extroverted, but I definitely appreciate my alone time. I'm not like an extreme extrovert, but it was just interesting. Like I could tell by the end of the week that she was totally depleted just because she was sitting at home alone and she was super unproductive a lot of the time. Like she got distracted super easily. Like anytime someone was texting, calling, whatever, like she would prioritize that over doing her work. So Mm -hmm. I totally, I think it's hard when you don't have those confines, if you're an entrepreneur or if your job's just kind of like do whatever, like to your point about having the boundaries or having that set of parameters, Mm -hmm. it really does help people, I think, in a lot of ways. Yeah. 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 And I think it makes a lot of sense what you say to Sarah about, you know, if you're, especially for writers, because I create a lot of content for work as well. And being in-house recently for a client, as much as I adore them and I love being able to chit-chat with them, I'm like, it took me two days to write a 1,500-word blog post that should oh have taken gosh, me yeah. an hour, yes. you know? Yeah. Um, and that can be that can be really problematic in terms of, of mm-hmm. productivity. So if, if your main bread and butter is writing, mm-hmm. I feel you. So mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it needs yeah. to be a nice mix. That's how I feel like in my current office. It's like, I like having some chit chat time. And so maybe for you, Shay, like you have the option of working from home, but then you also have the option of like being in an office with another person. Like you kind of get best of both worlds. Whereas I feel like I'm hoping. Yeah. Let's check in. If you have a traditional, (laughs) yeah, definitely. But if you have more of like a traditional office, like I, I mean, obviously that's the benefit of being an entrepreneur, but like I, like now the office, I, I will say that's like a nice part of the new office is like there are, more like tiny booths you can go into or like small conference rooms where you can just like sit and work there's also like a a complete quiet room that's just like a big open table so you can like sit there and kind of do heads down work so I think that aspect is really nice it's just like can't we all can't we have that and also an assigned desk like why does it have to be one or the other and I think that's what people are really struggling with and realizing that these like millennial kind of startup-y companies like are very cash deprived some of the times and like even though they're doing really well, like the company that I work for is like number one in the industry, like they're doing really awesome, but like they're still struggling in some ways like this and the rest of the workforce doesn't see it. And I think even entrepreneurial companies, like if you bring on a staff, I know we've talked about this with Emily, um, she was a former client of Shay's who's become kind of a partner in a lot of ways. Like she talked about that, that it's like 
you end up having to kind of shield things from your employees to not freak them out, even though there's nothing to really yeah. freak out about and you can't give them the full picture. So I'm kind of in the in-between where I'm I'm a employee, but I'm also kind of behind the scenes. But I'm just like, guys, like, we could save money in other ways. Like, don't take away people's desks. So I don't know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. interesting. Millennial problems. All right. Well, I think this is a great place to transition mm-hmm. into the interview portion and and hear a little bit more about Sarah and and her work. Um, yeah. I, I don't, Sarah, is there a particular place where you want to start? Maybe I, if she wants um, to say where she grew up and how old she is, because I don't think we did that oh, yeah, at the beginning. That's helpful. Oh, sure. Um, I grew up in a town of 2000 people in rural Minnesota in the resort, the resorty part of Minnesota. Um, called Aiken. It has 2,200 people. My high school mascot was a turkey. Um, And I turned 40 in August. Awesome. Awesome. So what what has your career path taken you? Have you always been a professional kind of writer entrepreneur? Or did you ever have a traditional job? How did you kind of get to your blog career that you have now? Um, so I, my undergraduate degree is in English and I did a bunch of internships in like marketing, PR, journalism. And my first job out of college was, um, doing marketing and event planning. And I burned out. And when I was in college, I had, um, taught English in Brazil for a semester and I burned out on marketing, moved abroad, taught English a bunch. Um, then I went to graduate school in New Zealand to get Mm -hmm. my master's degree in applied linguistics. And then when I moved back to the States, um, uh, culture shock moving back to the U.S. is no joke. Um, and I was really struggling and I, I wanted a creative outlet um, because it felt like everything else in my life sucked. <laughs> and so I wanted a creative outlet. And because of my background in English and because of the other work that I'd done, I've, I've been getting paid to write for 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I knew I knew that I was a good writer and because of my background in marketing, I felt like I had a pretty decent understanding of like persuasive writing and understanding what people want to read. And so I started a blog in 2008 and I kind of like, I think I kind of inadvertently happened upon a hole in the market and also blogging was really different in 2008. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I pretty quickly, pretty, it gained steam pretty quickly. Um, and at this time, I was working as an ESL teacher at a nonprofit, um, so I was making $16 an hour with a master's degree, paying off $50,000 worth of school debt, and people started emailing me asking, like, oh, you're a really good writer. Could you ghostwrite something for us, or could you, you know, pitch for our, our publication, or can I hire you to help me with my blog, and, and like, when I started blogging, that was it was, I was not thinking like, this is going to be my career, Mm -hmm. but slowly the money that I was making on the blog started to surpass my salary of (laughs) (laughs) $34,000. As it does. Yes. Um, And then I, while I was teaching, I had been saving money, just really, really pinching pennies and saving money. And I quit my job to travel for 11 months And I sort of viewed this as like, I am going to quit teaching and I'm going to travel and I'm going to try to be like a self-employed blogger while I'm traveling. Because obviously it's a lot easier to um, support yourself if you're in India than it is if you're in Minneapolis. 
Um, And I kind of just felt like I'm going to lump all these life changes together. And then, you know, when I come home from this trip, if I can't support myself blogging, I'll go back to teaching Um, because it just felt too hard. Otherwise, like on Friday, I'm an ESL teacher. And then on Monday, I'm a, I'm a blogger like that just felt Mm -hmm. too hard. Um, but yeah, so I left on my trip. I traveled for 11 months while writing and I did at that point I was doing ghostwriting and like writing sales pages for people. Um, and also doing like some sponsored content on my blog. And when I got back to the States, I never needed to teach. I never needed to teach again. I, I just kept being self-employed. And so I've been self-employed for fully self-employed for a decade now. Wow. Was that a big moment of celebration for you when you got to those 10 years? Um, I, I would like to say yes, but not really. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because I think something that I struggle with, I think something that all entrepreneurs, especially online entrepreneurs mm-hmm. struggle with is something that I think is uniquely just specific to the online entrepreneur space is that people talk very openly mm-hmm. about how much money they make. Yeah. And you can also just look right at their Instagram profile and see how many followers they have. Yeah. You can look right at their Instagram account and see what brands they're partnering with. Whereas like, if you are a brick and mortar business, it is extremely unlikely that you know the profits of the other people on that street. Like yeah. that is that it, nobody would say that nobody mm-hmm. like, and maybe they have a Mercedes, but who knows, maybe they have a trust fund or maybe, you know, they have yeah. investors. So I I would like to say that it was a huge moment of celebration t- to cross that 10 year mark. But mostly I was like, I'm not a literal millionaire. Yes. <laughs> How... Which is, you know, something I'm on. You kind of alluded to this, but I'm I'm really curious because I know your business is pretty multifaceted. You have a blog, but you also have clients in various capacities. But how did you grow your audience and your client base? Because it says on your website you have 13,000 um, daily readers, which is a lot. So how did that kind of come about and did it kind of happen naturally where it was just word of mouth or did you really try to cultivate it with your marketing background? Um, well, honestly, I mean, it's just the same stuff that you've heard all the time. You just have to write good content consistently. I mean, that's, that's literally it. It's <laughs> just like yeah. you, what do people want? What do they need help with? What do they want to hear? What topics are they concerned about it? And then you write about it. That that's, that's literally, that's really pretty much so it. So you, you so kind like, of put the content out there and then the people found it yeah. and came to you. That's yeah. awesome. And because... The statistics around blogs are that 70% of blogs um, are abandoned within three months. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Similar so to podcasting. I think the, yeah. So, I mean, I think the really unsexy truth about quote unquote success is like sometimes you win the race because everybody else drops out. Like, well, yeah. And like, I'm, I'm fine a, with like, that. <laughs> I, I'm, a, I'm a good writer and I have good ideas, but I know a million people who are a better writer th- than I am, but they quit their blog after two weeks and I didn't. Mm-hmm. What are your. So kind of moving into what you're working on now. So tell us, I guess a little bit, if you can describe kind of the type of topics that you cover in your blog. And then I want to talk particularly about Bank Boost and some of the other programs that you have coming up uh, in the new year. Yes. Um, So on my blog, so because I've been writing for Yes and Yes has been around for, I think, 11 years, 12 years. Um, I have 2,000 blog posts in my archives. That's <laughs> and amazing. 
And and that it used to be like twenty eight hundred, but I deleted a bunch of embarrassing things that were just like song lyrics, you yes. know, from when I was like twenty four. Um, but so when I started out, it was a much more of a lifestyle blog. Um, but these days, I try to align my blog posts with the things that I coach people on and the topics that I teach about in my courses, which are goal setting, habit change, and the intersection of money and happiness. Mm-hmm. So um, Sarah has a bank or a book called Bank Boost, which is also an online course and would you call it a community as well? Yeah, the 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 online course. It's a I run the course live, okay. um, which I think is different from a lot of um, other online stuff. Um, but yes, when I run the program live, um, there is a there's a community aspect to it. There's a cool. very very active Facebook group. Awesome. So I downloaded and read the book last night, and I really enjoyed it. And it's so it's so interesting because I do I do a lot of financial work um, with my small business clients and and solopreneur clients. So it's always interesting to read, you know, what what someone else has to say on the topic. And I loved the way that you presented it because it was so like there's nothing so there's nothing that shames the person. There's nothing. It's really just like how can you do more with what you have right mm-hmm. um yeah. and i i loved that and there was um oh you say somewhere that it, or yeah i saw a comment on your website that someone made that it's not overly virtuous and i was like oh yes this is awesome and that's a perfect description so mm-hmm. um i'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about how you kind of came up with the idea for bank boost and and who's it who it's perfect for and and maybe if you feel like sharing a key takeaway or two. Sure. Um, so I came up with Bank Boost. So the methods, there are three pillars. There are three sort of tools or methods that I teach in Bank Boost. Um, and Bank Boost is kind of like if you did Whole30, but for your money. Like it's meant to be like a short-term sprint. Like it's a very specific set of actions that you take over five weeks. Um, and the, the way I came up with it is because these are things that I did when I was in graduate school and I was living in Wellington, New Zealand, which is actually surprisingly expensive. I believe um, it. It's, it's weirdly expensive. Um, and I was, you know, making like 14 bucks an hour plus paying international student fees, plus paying rent, um, plus going to school. And so the stuff that I teach in Bank Boost is stuff that I myself did, methods that I myself developed to live on an incredibly tight budget and still have a life that was lovely, still have a life that included, you know, like going on hikes with my friends and going to movies and going out for cocktails and wearing clothes that I thought were cute and saving enough money to go to Fiji for two weeks. And so these were methods that I developed. And so much of the stuff that I see in the personal finance space falls sort of under the heading of like, personal deprivation at all costs Mm -hmm. and like if you don't have a coupon for it and it's not ramen noodles it's not for you if it's not ramen noodles in a library book like it's not for you yeah or the stuff that's like get rich quick you know do this and you'll be a millionaire but at the end of the day a lot of people that is simply not a possibility for them for Mm -hmm. any variety of reasons and also I kind of feel like it matters what you earn matters less than what you spend. Like the statistics mm. around people who end up being millionaires, a very significant percentage of millionaires are people who made 50 grand a year. That's very true. Yeah, because I, talk, I work in finance for a living and I do budgets and 
that's what we say all the time to people that work yeah. in marketing and they're like, oh, well, if we're growing, you know, exponentially every year, we should just be able to spend what we want. And it's like, well, that's not how it works. <laughs> that's not how you build a no. profitable business. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. And like if you make 200 grand a year, but you spend $250,000, you're much worse off than the person who makes 50 but spends 30. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So exactly. I'm listening to this and I'm not I haven't read the book like Shay has. And I'm not as familiar with your philosophy, but it sounds awesome. But I'm like, how do I do that? Like, if if I'm obviously <laughs> so then, but like, what's, taking the course. No, but it's like, I, I make good money. I, I live in New York. I have a comfortable salary. I'm not like, you know, staying up at night wondering how I'm going to pay the bills. I don't have any credit card debt or anything like that. But I'm also like, I look at my bank account and it's not growing every month and I still you know there's still stuff that I want to do that I can't because of financial limitations right so I'm like but then I look at my life and I'm like what what could I cut out that's not a deprivation thing like you're talking about like what what so without giving away too much of your course what what is like the main (laughs) philosophy behind that because thinking about it I'm like I would want to do that but it seems totally aspirational and not feasible to me um well so the three pillars of Bank Boost, number one is you create a fund budget, which is basically where you go through your, um, you go, you print out your credit card statement, you print out your bank statement, and you look at like what every discretionary purchase that you made over the last month. So like eating out, groceries, clothes, makeup, everything that is non-essential. So you go through, you add up that number, and then you divide it in half. And so when you're doing a bank boost, my goal for you is to spend half of what you usually spend. But my goal is for you to truly actually spend it. Like you don't need, like if, if you usually spend $500 a month on like fun shenanigans, I want you to spend 250 and I don't want you to spend 230. Like I, I truly want you to like spend that, spend it with joy, spend it with intention. And once you figure out your fund budget, you withdraw it in cash, you divide it by four or five, depending on how long your bank boost is, and you put it in envelopes. And then every week, that is your cash to spend. I'm somewhat controversially, I literally do not have a budget. I don't use any spreadsheets. I don't use any budgeting software, mostly because I've internalized all the stuff that I teach because I've been doing this for 15 years. Um, But the statistics and the facts around, um, the psychology around cash is that we spend it slower and we value the stuff that we buy with it more and it's also just so much easier. Like when you hand somebody a card, you almost immediately forget how much you spent. But if you can literally open your wallet and see that there are three fives left and you're gonna use one of them to buy a latte, like that that registers with you emotionally and psychologically in a way that handing over your card doesn't. Yeah, I felt Sarah when I was reading the book, it's very much, I mean, there's a similarity to almost the Marie Kondo mm-hmm. um, yeah. philosophy, but applying applying that to money, because I know when I first did like the life changing magic of tidying up, I was like, mm-hmm. this is going to be I'm going to hate this because she's going to tell me to give away all my stuff. And that's not really what yeah. it's about. You're not telling people to not spend. It's just to be more intentional about the ways that you spend. And Maddie, I'll share with you, I did I did the thing with the bank statement last night and like, first of all, I was, I thought I was going to be really shocked at like what a <laughs> profligate spinner I am, but I saw it and I was like, mm-hmm. oh, okay. I feel like you're very responsible. I'm, I'm Well, yeah, I mean, I try to be uh, given, you know, the realities of 
entrepreneur life. But um, I looked at it and I was, I was pleased that I wasn't spending, I've really like stopped any of the like miscellaneous trips to Target or to mm-hmm. the shops. But for me, I realized if I don't meal plan, it mm-hmm. like all goes to hell yeah. in a hand basket real quick. Yeah. Like our HelloFresh didn't show up this week. The whatever, the $43 I spend on the HelloFresh that usually feeds us for six meals or whatnot. Instead of that, we've been kind of at a loss. So we've like, we've done some like cooking out of the fridge, but mostly you're like, oh, I guess we'll just go out because we don't have a plan. And I guess long story short, it was it really helped me see how important it is that just that one thing, like making mm-hmm. sure I have my meals planned out and what we're going to cook and budgeting in which nights we know we're going to go out because, you know, I love going out to eat. I live in Portland, which is an amazing city for food. And but I also don't want to go out to eat every night. Um, that time in my life has passed. But, uh, you know, so I think really being able to see that in like stark black and white was really, yeah. really helpful for me. And I think and something else that we talk a lot about is um, spending triggers. And just exactly like that. Like if you don't meal plan, everything falls apart. Mm-hmm. I tell people all the time, like I know that this you're going to it's going to sound like it doesn't make sense. You're going to doubt that it makes sense. But I promise you that if you a start your morning with like, like if you literally get a coffee cup that you love to use, if your like coffee and tea making equipment is like cute and like high quality and you like it, like literally just starting your day with a lovely cup of coffee that's joy to make and underwear that feels comfortable to put on. It sounds silly, but I swear to God, it can alter the rest of your day. Yes. There's a company, I've talked about it on this podcast, called Bitta, B-Y-T-A. And the guy that started it talks a lot about that. They're reusable cups that can be used for cold or hot things. And they're really, they come in like fun colors and they're very like sleek and modern. And he talked about that because he's like, you go, you know, the kind of old school like tin coffee mugs like Mm -hmm. you're just you know the one like I'm thinking back to when I was in middle school like my parents had them and they would just be like rolling around in the backseat and then we would forget about (laughs) them and then you know what I mean like Mm -hmm. it's a very specific image that's not sexy and fun or appealing in any way and so he's like this is a cup that like if you took it to a barbecue you know because you don't want to like he's also big into like ecological sustainability and stuff Mm -hmm. like that but I think it goes a lot with that stuff he's like if it's something that you enjoy you're more likely to use it and therefore not use the you know disposable cup kind of thing so Mm -hmm. i totally agree absolutely and if you just under if you and this again falls under the heading of it seems like it doesn't tie into money but i swear to god it does if you under if you know yourself well enough to know what truly makes you happy everything else will fall into place like i can tell you I will spend like a pretty decent amount of money on on like cute travel lodgings. Like I want the cute Airbnb. I, I am not, I don't want to stay at the Best Western out by the highway. I want like, you know, the five-star Airbnb. It doesn't have to be $400 a night or anything, but I want it to be cute. I do not care about food. I'm a, I'm a vegetarian. So like 90% of the time I'm going like to end up paying utility for you. Yeah, like I mean I like to eat, but I but like why am I paying $17 for a plate of very mediocre pasta? Yeah. So like I would so much rather spend my money on an expensive Airbnb and then I will legit walk to the gas station and buy like two things of yogurt and some string cheese and a bag of almonds because I don't care about that. Yeah. So and so it's really it saves smart. me tons of money by doing that. Yeah. 
And I think that brings us to really interesting then, you know, another kind of part of your, your blog and your writing that I want to talk about is you travel quite a bit and you talk about the ways you employ, you know, these, these skills and, and being, I don't even want to use the word frugal, but in being mindful in the way that you spend when you're traveling, but you also do some pretty baller trips. I think, did you go, to, was it the Middle East that you yeah, went to? I was, yeah, I was in Morocco for two yeah. weeks. I was in Morocco for three weeks and then the UAE for a week. And I That's just got back incredible. from Palm Springs. I was in Costa Rica for two weeks earlier this year. Yeah. I went on a bunch of road trips. I'm going back this, to Costa Rica in January. I'm going to Hawaii for two weeks in March. This I'm super fascinated by what you're about to say that Shay prompted the question because I feel <laughs> like every time I travel, A, the flights are like triple as expensive as I think they're going to be. And then B, I end up, even if I'm like, okay, we're staying in an Airbnb, we're going to like cook stuff. It's always like when you're going to and from the airport, you end up spending a ton of money on like coffee and food and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And then it's also hard to plan stuff for people that have different budgets. Like I Mm -hmm. invited people to my parents' house in February and I invited a lot of people who were like all over the place. And some people were like, great, awesome. Don't even need to look at it. 100% in all the way to people that are like, I literally can't spend any money on anything. I have to be a monk because my job doesn't pay me anything. Mm -hmm. And it's like, there's, Mm -hmm. it's very stressful for me because I'm like, I can't balance all of this. And then there's some people who are just like, oh, I didn't look at flights at all. And now they've tripled in price. So now I can't go. And I'm like, well, that was on you. So like, I'm very fascinated by the travel thing because I think people have a lot of different opinions on what it should and should not cost or yeah. like emotional baggage almost over like what they deserve yeah. oh, to do, which absolutely. I think is very interesting. Yeah. Um, well, I will say one of the ways I've solved this is I usually travel by myself. <laughs> so that yeah. solves a lot I mean, of I might be that way in February because it's looking real expensive and no one's committed. So I'll take a yeah. note Sorry, out of your Maddie. playbook. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I will say, A, I often travel by myself or... I am going someplace where my friends live. So then that has solved the problem. Like um, when I go to Hawaii, um, my aunt and uncle are snowbirds and they have rented a house in Hawaii for a month. Um, And so they've, you know, invited all, you know, nieces and nephews and cousins and stuff. Um, So A, that makes it affordable because I don't have to, I'm very fortunate that I will not be paying for lodging um, on, on that island. Um, and I don't have to worry about planning anything because there's going to be like 11 people and everybody just does what they want. Um, and then I'm flying to Hilo where I'm visiting another friend where she lives. So again, I don't have to pay for lodging. And so that solves that problem. And I also, and I think that you'll probably find this too, is I have like probably two or three go-to friends who are like my travel buddies. I know we travel well together. They're also self-employed. So they have flexible work schedules. Um, we're in a similar financial situation. Um, and also like, I know myself well enough and I, to, to say things like, for me, like if somebody's like, I want to go to the Louvre, I will literally just be like, Oh, that's not for me. And, and I, I won't be guilt tripped into it. And I try to create a dynamic with any of my friends that they feel comfortable doing that. Mm -hmm. So I'll say things like, you know, I will open up the conversation with like, what, what are the things that you really, what are your can't miss things for this trip? Um, and then I'll tell them mine and I'll say like, these are the things that I want to do zero pressure. If you don't or can't want to join me, that's totally fine. 
And and I also try to be clear to them that like when I say that I really mean it. it I'm yeah. not like being passive aggressive. I tr- I'm very independent. I'm totally happy if you don't want to do this with me. Um, so a lot of my a lot of my travel is um, not all of it, but a lot of it is very strategic. Like, oh, you know, my friend lives in Hilo and she's been wanting me to visit forever. And my aunt wants me to go to their vacation house. So obviously that is great because now I have two weeks worth of free lodging in a really expensive place. Um, Or I'm doing a sponsored trip with some tourism board and they're paying for my flight. And so since the flight is paid for, I might as well make the most of it and like tack on these other trips on top of it. Um, I also use, I put absolutely everything on my credit card and then pay it off at the end of the month. And I use um, the Capital One Venture Card, which has the travel eraser, which I'm obsessed with. And they also um, reimburse you for global entry and TSA pre-check. So oh, that makes everything nice. much, much better. Um, and and because I'm self-employed, I can kind of just go when the flights are cheap. Um, I'm a huge fan, just like everybody else, of the Google Flights price grid and the like predictor. So you can just like look at like, okay, in a three-month span, when are the cheapest flights going to be? And then I just book based on that. Yeah. Um, and the other thing is that I have tons of travel-related blog posts on my blog. And in almost every blog post that's related to travel, there is an affiliate link for Airbnb. And if you use that affiliate link, you get $50 off your first Airbnb booking and I get $30. And so every year I get truly probably about $2,000 worth of free Airbnb lodging. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. People really underestimate how successful affiliate links can be. Um, Oh yeah. They can make it. uh, Yeah. I make hundreds of dollars every month off of um, affiliate links. Yeah. And especially when it's stuff that you truly love, it feels great to talk about it. Um, yeah, I have a friend who talks about a a coffee frother all the time and she's like, Oh, I set up a affiliate link and I'm making like $250 a month off of this stupid coffee frother, you know, or milk frother or whatever. And I was like, totally don't leave money on the table. No, I think those are all really good tips. And especially about the credit cards, because I think, you know, people are spending money anyways. And this is where I get very frustrated with the particular friends that, you know, and I think this is where your story is so incredible, Sarah, like you were, you know what it's like to make no money and still live a fulfilling life. You were talking about when you were living in New Zealand. And I feel like I know so many people in New York who are like, it's so expensive. I can't do anything. I'm like tied to this job. I'm working two jobs, like all this stuff. And then they are like, well, I can't apply for a credit card because that like credit cards are for rich people. But it's like, no, you're leaving money on the table Yes. By not using mm-hmm. these tools and people just oh see gosh, it as yes. aspirational or like, oh, this is for people that aren't making $30,000 a year or whatever it is. No, like, or they feel like, like they I have get, to be working yeah. all the time. Like it's just such a toxic mentality. And I know so many people yeah. like that. And it's just like a trap of like you only yeah. get the stuff that you feel that you deserve and they feel like they don't mm-hmm. deserve nice things, even if there's a way to pay for them cheaper with these tools. Yeah. And I think the thing that's so, so hard, and I've seen it in clients and students, is you have a super demanding job with really long hours. um, And then when you get home, you self-medicate by shopping, Mm -hmm. which then puts you into debt, which means that you are further trapped at this job that you hate because you can't leave for something lower paying because now you have all this debt. 
and it's incredibly, incredibly common. And it, it it's heartbreaking to like watch people. And I mean, it's not even, they're not, they're not doing it on purpose. They don't, they don't realize they don't connect. Like I'm exhausted and stressed out and I'm self-soothing by buying a bunch of stuff I don't need. Mm-hmm. But you guys have probably seen the meme of like, look at all this stuff that used to be money. Look at all this money that used to be time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's, and it's true. And I know it's a really hard cycle to break, but if you can break it, I mean, at the risk of overstating the case, learning to live within your means is one of the single most empowering and important things that you can do because you, you can become like unstoppable. Like if you know how to live on 34 grand a year and your boss is a jerk, you can quit. Mm -hmm. Like if you know how to live on 34 grand a year, you're never going to be trapped in a relationship that you're unhappy with because he has good health insurance. Yeah. 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 Totally. That's so such a good point, Sarah, because I feel like, again, something that I comes up all the time when you're talking with friends and it's so frustrating when people are like, well, I can't quit my job because of this and such. And maybe it's because I've paid for my own health insurance for, you know, 10 years. And I'm always like, yeah, I know it sucks. But if you manage your money, right, having to pay 400 bucks out of pocket, even though it sucks is not the end of the world. And Mm -hmm. it's just, again, people not being, being mindful. Um, Well, before we move into our last section, I did want to touch briefly on you have a new program coming out right after the new year. Is Mm -hmm. that that's brand new, isn't it? Um, It is. No, no. Oh, never mind. It's like (laughs) it's like it's like two years old. Okay. Um, But I think this is this is only like the second or third time that I've run it live. It's usually like it's always available um, as a self-paced course. Um, But what I've seen in all of my live courses, and I'm sure for anyone who's taken a self-paced course, like the results that people get with a live course are a bajillion times better than self-paced courses. And I have run courses live enough that I've sort of created systems around it so it doesn't like completely consume my life. I can run it live and help people get really good results without having, you know, to like answering emails and be in the Facebook group for eight hours a day. So I'm super happy to, to run it live and help them get much better results. So tell us about the one that you have upcoming. Um, so the one that's coming up is called Make It Stick Habit School. Um, and it is a six-week program that will help you build or break a habit, which might sound like sort of unsexy, but um, the science around decision-making is that up to 90% of the decisions we make are habitual, um, which is mind-blowing. Um, but when you think about like, brushing your teeth, making your bed, using your phone, the way you make your coffee, even like the way you react when people when people say certain things, when you walk the dog, you know, what you order at the coffee shop, you know, the way your the way your chemistry in your brain reacts when you see certain colors, like it's all habitual. And if you can build the right habits, you can put your goals kind of on autopilot. Mm-hmm. Because Goal, I, I love goal setting as much as the next Virgo. Um, but <laughs> a lot of times um, when you reach the goal, it can get kind of like, oh, God, so now what? Mm-hmm. Or like, oh, I thought I was going to feel a certain way when I crossed the finish line, when I broke into that tax bracket, when I could like bench press that thing. Um, and it can be sort of weird and hard when you get what you thought you wanted and it doesn't feel the, the way you want it to. Yeah. But 
and and or even like we've all had the experience where like oh you train for the marathon you run the marathon you never run again you give up dairy to like clear your skin your skin gets clear and then you're like great and then you start eating dairy time for cheese yes um but habits remove that cycle you can put it on autopilot and you can kind of almost stop thinking about it Mm -hmm. like a lot of my my morning routine is like virtually set in stone and I literally do it when I'm on vacation and my brain's not even on. Like I, I will you share what that routine is with us? Yeah. It's, okay. It's kind of involved. <laughs> I love it. Even better. Um so I make my bed as soon as I get out of it. Like I, I literally make my hotel bed, I make my Airbnb bed, I make my bed. Um I drink a glass of uh warm water if it's if I have it, I'll have lemon water. If I don't, I'll just have like warm tap water because I can chug it. <laughs> um, I go for a walk. If I'm home, I walk the dog. If I'm not home, I just the neighborhood I'm in. Um, which is also, if you're traveling, it's a really nice way to actually like see the city that you're in, like the real part of the city, not just like the cute downtown area with all the boutiques. Um, and then I make a cup of coffee and read whatever I'm reading. And then after that, I usually, um, start working if I'm at home and if I'm on vacation, I just go do whatever I want to do. That's awesome. That sounds like a perfect morning, actually. It reminds (laughs) me, I know Rachel Hollis has a thing where she says, if you do something, it takes like three to four weeks to break or kind of start something new, like either break mm-hmm. a habit or start a new habit. And then if you consistently do it for 90 days, then it becomes kind of part of your permanent routine. Do you find that those like that like somewhat holds true? Um, I think... Those statistics are actually wrong. <laughs> um, so the thing that we... I know. So the thing that we read in like every women's magazine, this is like 21 days to a new you. Mm -hmm. Um, But psychologists say that it's actually, it varies from 12 days to 265. Um, So with the average being 65 days and it varies from person to person then habit to habit. So like maybe, maybe Shay, you could build a habit of flossing your teeth in 12 days, but that mm-hmm. doesn't mean that every habit from now on is only going to take you 12 days. Yeah. Um, There's definitely some and, variability for sure. Yes. Yeah. And so that is one of the things that I, that I want to just like scream from the mountaintops because I think, I think Rachel, uh, Rachel Hollis is a little bit like the 90 day thing is, is much more accurate. Um, but especially like women's magazines and like listicles on BuzzFeed who tell you this 21 day thing, like it's that is short. Yeah. Untru- it's, it's untrue for virtually everyone. And what happens is you try to build your habit in 21 days. It doesn't work. You feel bad about yourself. You ha- it only strengthens this narrative that I'm not good at this mm-hmm. and it deepens the neural pathways of I can't do this. I'm not good at this. It just it literally makes it harder when you repeatedly fail because you've been given bad information, you, it literally sets you up to fail again in the future, which is awful. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. I feel like anything, I think that's what's so great about kind of this, and Shay and I have talked about it, kind of the wellness trends or, you know, even people like yourself that have lifestyle blogs, different types of blogs and the availability of information online. Like literally you can google anything and you can find an online course or Mm -hmm. you know anything at your fingertips to better your life I think that's to me such a great part because I think like even when I was a kid like I read 17 magazine and that was like all the self-help stuff 
that I ever saw, you know what I mean? Until I mm-hmm. became an adult. But now it's like, you don't have to rely on these kind yeah. of mass produced one size fits all things. Like we were talking about in a previous episode that we haven't released yet, but we'll be out when this comes out about kind of new age or kind of these like wellness trends and the move towards one size fits all with like yoga or like different mm-hmm. meditation apps and stuff. And like, they're a good gateway like I think it's nice if like Marie Claire writes an article that's like hey you should be thinking about your habits and like yeah it might be a little sensationalized but like someone might not have even considered changing a habit had they not come across Mm -hmm. that in like an airport lounge or something but Mm -hmm. I think it's great that there are people like yourself that are putting out this content and stuff that's so readily available like there's not a high barrier Mm -hmm. to entry where you have to like yeah buy this huge book or like go to college to understand this stuff yeah. yeah. So. Awesome. All right. Well, uh, Maddie, do you have any other questions for our guest? No, I'm excited to read the blog. I had not um, been exposed to your work before Shay introduced me, so I have lots of reading to do. Oh, and things. Welcome. Welcome yeah. to the fold. Yeah. Hi. And I'm definitely going to do the cash thing. I've been debating because oh, yeah. there's a huge difference. Yeah. I might do the course or download the book or whatever because I've been debating in the new year because I feel like this is just, I'm like, over having to like Shay and I were talking about like before like what's something like you were saying if you could walk into a bookstore and not have to think about the price of the book that you were buying yeah, you know within that's reason my obviously financial yeah how I'll know I made it is when I can just spend <laughs> oh, yeah. as much as I want in a bookstore yeah all the time so, so like nice. that got me thinking and I'm like yeah there's so many things that I would want to do that would probably bring me more happiness than the things that I'm currently doing or like feeling when mm-hmm. you were talking about Sarah about saying no to friends like I have a lot of friends in New York that want to do lots of things with me and have me mm-hmm. spend lots of money and I'm like you know what I value the friendship I do not value spending a hundred dollars every time you want to go to dinner and have drinks because that's oh, yeah. how you want to value the friendship so it's just made me think about things so I've been looking at like the financial gym who we've interviewed on this podcast like different oh, you yeah, know things yeah. like Both that so um but I th- I like the mentality and I think you fit into this well Sarah of like it doesn't need to be prescriptive it can be by person with some sort of guardrail mm-hmm. so you're not giving like a dollar amount but you're saying like half of whatever you're spending so if I'm spending you know way more than the average person then it, it doesn't seem as you know like you're depriving yeah. someone so I really like that yeah. so I'm gonna explore it more oh, yeah I think I think you'll really like it I think um I whenever I lead this course I occasionally get pushbacks pushback from students who are like but I have credit card debt shouldn't I like not spend any money <laughs> and I'm like okay like cool like in a truly absolutely perfect world yes you would stop buying anything that's not 100% necessary but my goal for you is to pay off your debt and not hate your life. And then yeah. when this is over, not freak out and go back to those same behaviors. Like you need a release valve. It's It would be the same as if I said like, you have to cut out dairy, sugar, alcohol, caffeine, and carbs from your diet for the next three months. The likelihood that you are going to never eat those things again is very low. The likelihood that as soon as the, you know, as soon as those three months are over, you're going to eat all that stuff is very high. Yeah. And that's, Sarah, again, what I love about your work is um, I think a lot of people in the personal finance space, Dave Ramsey, et cetera, it's very like it's all about paying down the debt, pay down the debt, pay down the debt at all costs. And 
like you said, it's not realistic. You hate your life. And I feel like I've always been way more successful paying down debt. If I look at the numbers and I say, I'm going to auto pay $50 more than the minimum. And then in six months, I'm like, Oh, it's almost gone. You know? And, yeah. and I didn't even think about that extra 50 mm-hmm. bucks going out of my account. Yeah. Um, yeah. It also depends on who you are. Like, what motivates you like I think some people are motivated by like the challenge of like can I pay down the debt as fast as possible and they actually Mm -hmm. get joy like we're talking about like what brings you joy like I think people do see that as like oh I have 50 grand worth of credit card debt let me see like now it's a it's a mountain that I have to chip away at and people Mm -hmm. see that and that actually brings them joy which I find super interesting um but then other people I think on the opposite side of the spectrum use the excuse of like paying off debt doesn't give me anything and I don't want to fall into the deprivation cycle that they just kind of ignore like I was listening to another podcast and it like was giving me anxiety listening to it but this (laughs) woman was like she was talking about her student loans and this was like 20 years ago before they were online or whatever and she would get the bills in the mail and she would just throw them to the back of her closet like it was just like a habitual like she she would be looking at the mail and she would just like see it and throw it in the back and then she moved like five years later and she literally had like a mountain of bills and she like sat down with her mom and like split a bottle of wine and was like I'm gonna open them and see how bad it is and just like rip the band-aid off and she was like it was god awfully horrible I now owe like two like twice as much interest and stuff and they had like sent her to collections and then she was like moving and she was gonna move in with her parents and then try to buy a house and the bank like literally laughed her out of the office and was like your credit is so horrible like no one will ever loan you anything so like it was inspirational in that she had literally hit rock bottom but it was also like you know you can't be ignorant to what's going on it does have real world consequences and like you know even if you're it's kind of out of sight out of mind it will it will come back so I think that I think there is a happy medium but again it comes it comes down to like what works for you and what's not going to make you hate your life and go back to the bad habits which I really I like that aspect yeah, for sure. All right. Well, we are now going to move into the archery range portion of uh, the the podcast. So, Sarah, we're going to ask you a series of rapid fire questions. Yes. Just answer uh, with whatever comes to mind first. Doesn't have to be your absolute, you know, favorite or least favorite, but just uh, what comes to mind. So, Maddie, you want to kick us off? Sure. Favorite book? Oh God, favorite book? Um, East of Eden. Oh, good one. Uh, favorite TV show? Mm, Parks and Rec. Me too. Nice. So good. A favorite place you've traveled but never lived? Ooh, um, Stockholm. Oh, cool. Um, favorite childhood snack? Um, rhubarb dipped in sugar. Ooh. Oh. I think that's that a one. first. Sarah. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, have you guys had rhubarb? Do you do you have rhubarb I... out there? also grew up in the country so i have had rhubarb but never just straight like that always like in a pie or in food of some kind my parents had a my parents were elementary school teachers and they had a rule that my daily snack had to be fresh fruit or vegetable and so i got around that by having rhubarb dipped in sugar nice. oh my god i love it it's Great. very tart though isn't it yeah when you well that's why you have to dip it in sugar yeah <laughs> basically like extremely sour celery <laughs> oh my god i didn't even know you could eat it raw honestly yeah. i thought you had to uh cook it mm-hmm. that's awesome favorite movie oh my gosh oh uh true romance oh 
Uh, favorite place in Minneapolis? Um, my house. <laughs> we love. Uh, I feel like All right. that's a good place to end. You're very rapid with the questions. Which is good. <laughs> we did good that time. Yeah. Do you have anything to plug or where people can find your work or find you online if they want to learn more? Um, I am most active these days on Instagram. I'm on Instagram stories pretty much every day. Um, my handle is yes and yes blog. And if you want to try bank boost, the book version of Bank Boost is literally $17, which is less than most target impulse purchases. <laughs> so you really don't have anything to lose. Um, and habit school opens for enrollment on January 6th. If you have a habit that you want to make or break in 2020, I would love to help you do it. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. It's been such a joy having you, uh, campers. We will see you next week. Bye. Thanks guys. Thanks for listening. Camp Adulthood is hosted by Maddie Yergi, resident youth and Shay Keats, Camp Adulthood. We are produced by Jenny Mayfield and this episode was recorded in Maddie's living room. You can find us on social media at camp underscore adulthood. You can email us hello at campadulthood.com and you can visit us at campadulthood.com. Thanks campers. We hope that you enjoy your stay at Camp Adulthood. <laughs>